Reverend John Ferret of Light of Menorah Ministries, and I wanted to welcome you to this vidcast, this Christmas vidcast, which is part of the podcast that Light of Menorah uh, provides you at our website, which is www.lightofmenorah.org, and Menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H, Light of Menorah, all one word, .org. A vidcast is nothing more than a video podcast. It's not just all audio, but it's also video. Now, what I normally do in my lessons, whether they, uh, especially if they're a video, is I always like to do a blessing. A blessing before we get into God's word, just like they did in Jesus's day. In Jesus, if he went to the synagogue, especially as a boy, and he was going to be attending Torah classes and Bible classes, which they did, they always started with the blessing, and so will we. So this blessing is partially in Hebrew and in English, and what I will do, especially for the sake of many of you new ones who uh, perhaps are accessing a podcast or a vidcast video from Light of Menorah for the first time, I will repeat the Hebrew slowly so that you can pray along with me, repeat the words after me. Baruch Hata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaHolam. Ashir Bakar Banu, Mikol HaChamim. Veinatamlanu Etoroto, Veinevuim Hatovim. Veinatamlanu Et Habesora Mashiach Yeshua. Venatan lanu et abrit chadasha. Barukata Adonai, noten hadeverei emet. And in English, let's say this together to thank the Lord, thank our God for his word, both the written word and the living word, the living word in Jesus. Together, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from all people and given us his Torah and the good prophets, and given us the good news of Messiah Jesus, and given us the new covenant. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the words of truth. So those of you that are new to Light of Menorah, perhaps uh, one of you old-timers that is connected with us and is accessing the vidcasts, which are videos, and the podcasts, which are the audio lessons, perhaps you've link this uh, to a friend or somebody in your family, and they don't know who I am. Well, if you go to the website, lightofmenorah.org, there will be a picture, uh, which is the title, the, the, the title picture that you saw here at the beginning of the video. It'll be pretty clear where it is when you're there at the uh, website. And underneath there will be a short description of this video, and there will be links there. And in the link section, the last link that's provided is my background, who I am. 
So the question is, why should I listen to this guy, John Ferret? Um, what's his experience? And you'll see that I have advanced degrees in Bible history and archaeology and um, done a lot of research and a lot of study, uh, not only in Israel, but in Turkey and in the Sinai and in Egypt, etc. So that is available there for you. Now, many of you have taken my courses. Uh, many of you are listening to my podcast. And many of you already probably are well aware what a manger is. But for those of you that uh, perhaps have heard briefly what a manger is, uh, we're going to go into it in some of the background. What I want to do is I want to take you to a spe specific archaeological site, and you're looking right now at Tel Megiddo. Uh, some people pronounce it Megiddo. Uh, this is where people say the last battle is going to happen uh, with regards before Jesus uh, actually returns as king. Anyway, in taking a look at this aerial view, we want to go to Tel Megiddo. Actually, it's the ancient city of Megiddo in northern Israel. And uh, let's take a look at a model, uh, an archaeological uh, rebuilding of what the city perhaps looked like. And what you're looking at then is you can see on the left-hand side a building that looks like it's two stories tall. That's the Southern Palace, and right next to the Southern Palace, to the right, are the stables. It is theorized that the palace was used by Ahab and Jezebel, and the stables just to the right uh, of the palace are his stables. And so now we're looking at another picture, which are actually a picture of the remains of the stables. And what I want you to do is I want you to notice the structures that are circled in red. These structures that you're seeing are the ancient feeding stations for horses and perhaps donkeys or mules if they actually had them in the stables. Now let's take a closer look at this feeding station itself. And you can notice it's pretty clear that they're made out of stone. They're made out of rock. These are called mangers. Now, when you take a look at the etymology of the English word manger, it comes from the French meaning to feed. And so in Hebrew, the word is evos, evos. Some of you might be interested in the Strong's number. The Strong's number is H18. Now, in Israel, as you're looking at this manger, at this Evos, okay, you'll notice it's made out of stone. That is what they're made of in Israel. They are made out of rock. They are cut out of rock, chiseled uh, to make a bowl so that, indeed, the horse, the mule, uh, the lamb, the goat, obviously for a lamb and a goat, the manger is going to be not as tall as this one, so they can actually get to the water and the food. These mangers, obviously we're finding them here in Ahab's stables, but these mangers are also found in shepherd's caves. This is where the shepherd would normally go, perhaps in the evening, and he would actually bring his sheep into a cave. Uh, his flock into a cave, and he would have taken hammer and chisel and chiseled out a manger, an avos, 
inside the cave so he could put feet in there, water, and so on. Here you're looking at a cave where I have outlined the manger in red. It was actually carved right from the side of the cave itself. Here's another uh, shepherd's cave. And what I did is I superimposed a manger inside the cave. It doesn't belong there. It's not part of the picture. That's just uh, tricks of photography and uh, uh, having some fun with uh, the pictures and so on. But it just gives you an idea of where the Avos might be located. But this, what you're looking at, though, I wanted you to see, is a typical sheepfold, especially among the Bedouin, even today in Israel. And also, mangers are found in the lower level of houses in the days of Jesus. This would be primarily for special animals that they would keep in the house. Uh, I've read reports. Um, from scholars that they would say, suppose there is um, a mother sheep who is basically going to be giving birth, they would probably have her in the house. Normally, sheep are going to stay outside at certain times of the year. Uh, it could be the donkey, which is a very valuable animal for farmers, would be kept safely locked away there in the lower level of the house. And you're looking at a picture of a model of a what they call a four-room house in the Galilee, and you can see the arrow pointing to the manger there in the lower level for exactly those purposes. So it is very likely from scholars today, understanding the geography, understanding the archaeology, that it is probable that Jesus was born probably in his grandfather's house, Joseph's father's house in Bethlehem or Bethlehem. So what I've done for you is I have linked you to some articles and a video from scholars at the Associates for Biblical Research. This is a Christian evangelical group of professional archaeologists, Bible historians, uh, that obviously are Christian evangelicals. And in these articles, you're going to take a look at the archaeology and the geography and so on, which talks more about Jesus' birth. So indeed, Joseph is becoming coming to Bethlehem, obviously to register for the tax. He's got to go to his hometown. And so it's likely that he went to his father's house. Now, was Jesus born in a barn? Was Jesus born in a cave? Was Je a shepherd's cave? Was he born in a home? Uh, one scholar argues that probably, based upon the Jewish culture, based upon Jewish tradition and things that we know of those days, Jesus seems to have been likely born in the lower level of his grandfather's house. He was laid in a manger, and they would find mangers in that lower level. So you're going to find some of these uh, uh, these two articles and the video by Gary Myers, uh, Gary Byers, and Gary Byers is a very respected, uh, awesome Christian scholar, and he has got a great video that you could link other people to to go into the you might say the reality of Christmas. Now, we have known this stuff. For 1,700 years, we've known that Jesus was not born in a basket with straw. 
or a crib. Uh, he was not born in a barn. We've known this for 1,700 years. When you go to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem, this place was first commissioned, a church um, was commissioned by Emperor Constantine after his mother Helena had gone to Israel and visited all of the key biblical sites in five, oh, about five, th no, 325 to 326 AD. And she was supposedly at the traditional site where Jesus was born. It was a cave. Now the house was gone after so many hundreds of years. Uh, so there could have been a house on top of that cave because many times a house in the Galilee, Forum House, would be built on top of the cave and that would be the lower part of the house. But all this, that the manger was a stone feeding trough called Avos, uh, that indeed Jesus was probably born in a cave, perhaps under a house or underneath or in the lower level of a house. Oh, this has been lost. It's lost because the church has forgotten Israel. The church itself has turned away from its Jewish roots way back when. The church became, well, I like to call it Europeanized. I mean, they were so caught off from the Jewish culture, from the culture in Israel. And when you take a look at a manger, in other words, where are animals fed in Europe, it's going to be in a wooden box. Uh, or many times the uh, what we call the crib of Jesus. It would have been the place where they put the straw and the hay for the donkeys or uh, the other animals. And that would happen in a barn, a wooden barn, or maybe perhaps a wooden stable. There, there are no stables and there are no barns in Israel. Today there are, but not then. That we know from archaeology. That we know because of the culture of 2,000 years ago. And the error is still taught today in almost every church, every church I've gone to, and I take a look at their nativity scene. Now, with all this, I have to say, for me, as a Bible historian, in studying the Torah, this is the, the main Bible that they had in Jesus' day. Jesus said, all scripture testifies of me in John 5.39. He said that probably between 24 to 30 A.D., and he's probably emphasizing the Torah more than anything else, the first five books of the Bible. So studying that, being in Israel as many times as I've been there, and not only just leading tours, but also for research and study myself, and then understanding what a manger is, avos. And once I knew Yeshua was born, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, something jumped out at me that just was, it was really awesome. And it tied the manger. It tied Christmas to another event in Jesus's life. And all of a sudden Christmas, its meaning was enriched. Its meaning was enhanced. Let's take a look. Now, one thing that to remember, and I just quoted it, John 5, 39, all scripture testifies of me. And the only scripture that they had in Jesus's day was the Old Testament. I don't like calling it the Old Testament. I call it the Hebrew scriptures. There's nothing old about the Old Testament. It's God's word. 
And Jesus says that all of that testifies of me. So I want you to remember that because all of a sudden we're going to see something in the Torah that, that connects to the manger, that connects to another event. And for me, it would just, the birth of Jesus takes on an enhanced meaning. So indeed, we're going to return to Beit Lechem. Beit Lechem is how you pronounce Bethlehem. And Beit Lechem is the house of bread. That's what it means. We're looking at a modern view of the city of Bethlehem today. It's a big city. Uh, I can't remember how many thousand people now, 100,000, maybe more. I, I can't remember the exact figure. I didn't look it up before we actually uh, got onto this video. Uh, I like to show this picture of a small village very close to Bethlehem. This is probably how what Bethlehem looked in Jesus's day. Probably 100, maybe a little bit bigger than this, maybe 200, maybe 300 people that would live there. It was a small village. It was way off the main road. The main road is a couple of miles away. Uh, the main, you might say, caravan route was a couple of miles away. It was just a little small farming community uh, just before the Judean wilderness going down to the Dead Sea. Here, you're looking at the Church of the Nativity. And at, as, as I said, uh, Emperor Constantine commissioned the building of a memorial church back in 325, 326 AD after his mother visited here. Now you're looking at parts of the Crusader ruins as the church has been obviously knocked down and then built up and knocked out and modified and so on. And you're looking at the tiny door going into the Church of the Nativity and you really have to bend down. And if you look really close, there's an archway there. That doorway was actually sealed up because people came with their carts they would take their carts inside the church and steal stuff. So the authorities in Bethlehem said, well, we're going to stop them from doing that. We're going to seal up the door and uh, make an entryway that is only small enough for one person to come through if they bend over. So that's why it's sealed. Looking inside the church in the nativity, and if you go downstairs you come to a number of rooms, and this is what they call Jerome's room, St. Jerome. St. Jerome, supposedly, this was his office uh, back uh, when he was around, and he was actually uh, translating the Bible from Hebrew into Latin, and this supposedly is the place uh, that he actually uh, had his office where he copied it. Now, the reason why I want you to see that, you can see that the ceiling and the back wall, this is a cave. This is a large cave, and not just down the, the uh, hallway from here is what you would call the grotto of the Church of the Nativity. This is the grotto, and it gets, it's a few steps for, from Jerome's place, and it's part of the same cave. And you can see behind the glass there in the arch that, indeed, you're at the wall uh, of a cave. This was a cave. And the manger is below. There is part of the cave that's below the marble um, marble fireplace-looking structure. Uh, there is a star that you can look down, but there is a way, and I don't think they allow you to get in there, to get down into the remainder of the cave. And there is a manger there, a manger, a rock manger. This is my uh, take on the fact that Jesus could actually have been born 
in the lower level of his grandfather's house. Uh, made up this picture, the grandfather's house, Joseph's house, his dad's house would have been above and there would be a cave below for obviously farm implements and certain key animals. And this is perhaps the scene of what it would look like in Jesus's day when he was born. And we remember in the story that the shepherds came with their sheep to actually visit the newborn king. And so as we read, the shepherd are out with their sheep. Perhaps in a sheepfold, in a cave or some enclosure. This can't be winter. It must be warm because it says that they were out in a field. The Greek word there implies an agricultural field. And since it is an agricultural field, it's got to be after the harvest when it's warm. This is probably going to be in September. So it's possible these it's possible that these sheep that these uh, were part of the shepherd's flocks could have been sheep that were being raised for the temple sacrifices. There are some people that say that indeed uh, this is in uh, Jewish literature. It is not, um, but it's possible. Thus, we have Jesus being raised possibly among sheep that are being raised for the temple sacrifices. He's one of the lambs. He is the lamb for Passover. Now, the angels are proclaiming to the shepherds that it's a time of great joy for all the nations. Now, this is talk that is really part of the Feast of Sukkot, which is in the fall, which is at the end of the harvest, which would be where the sheep would be. They would be out in the fields because the barley had already been harvested, the wheat had been harvested, the corn had been harvested, so there'd be nothing in the fields because the growing season, the rainy season, is about to start. So there is the Feast of Tabernacles in Hebrew Sukkot, and this would have been in the September time frame. And in that feast, the rabbis said of the feast that it's a time of great joy for all nations. And here the angels are using the same, the same wording with regards to Jesus's birth. So we know that Yeshua, Jesus, he came to die at Passover, and in the Feast of Sukkot, we get the picture of his return, the coming to rule, the coming of the king. So the Israelites are fed with the bread of life. They are fed with the bread of heaven, the manna that God gave them. But Jesus says he is the bread of life and he is the bread from heaven. And indeed, we are fed with the manna. We are his sheep, and we are in the cave coming to visit the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord. Now, when you read about the first Passover, I wanted to highlight some verses in Exodus 13, verses 6 through 9. And it says, For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you. Nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
and it shall serve as a sign. Now, the, uh, this is key. The unleavened bread, this is God's wording to Moses and to all of us. This unleavened bread will serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead. So it's a picture. And God wants us to remember what this means. And the reminder is that this represents the law. Actually, it's Torah. Torah is not law. Torah is instruction. In other words, that the instruction of God, the instruction of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. This is the unleavened bread that's used at the Passover, at the first Passover meal, and then at all Passover meals since then. Then we can read about Jesus' Passover in Matthew 26, 26. And he takes the bread. Every disciple in that room, the 11 that are there, Judas has already left. They know Exodus 13, 6 through 9. They know that that bread is supposed to be a picture, a picture of the written word of God in their mouth. And Jesus says, this bread is my body broken for you. Jesus is saying that he is the living word. He is the living bread of life. Beit Lechem means the house of bread. Yeshua is born in Beit Lechem, in the house of bread. He is the bread from heaven. Bread from heaven, manna. He is the heavenly manna, the spiritual manna. He's the word. He's the living word. We have the written word. God said in Exodus 13, that he has the written word and the unleavened bread is to be a picture of his Torah, his written word in our mouth. And now Jesus is saying that he's taken the bread and now it's a picture also of the living word. And man does not live by bread alone. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. There is the written word, God's Torah, and there is his living word, Jesus. And so indeed, the written word is our bread of life. And Jesus, the living word, is the bread of life. And so we, on Christmas, we are the sheep of the Good Shepherd Jesus. We come to his feeding trough, which is his bed. We are his sheep and his lambs. And we are fed from the trough. And he told us to eat my body and drink my blood. And when all of this started coming together, what I began to see is Jesus in the manger at the time of his birth is a picture of what the church calls communion. And all of a sudden, we have a different aspect of these days when we remember the birth of the Messiah. 
Indeed, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. This is a big deal. And so may he who makes shalom in his highest places, may he make shalom upon you and me and upon all Israel. And let us all say, Amen. Thank you.